The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of, of Mark, and we've been out of it for a few weeks. But if you recall, Jesus has come into Jerusalem and he has been loudly proclaimed by the crowds that he's the Messiah. They think he's the Messiah. The blind man is yelling out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then the crowd is throwing down the palm branches. And, and Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. And he goes into the temple and he clears out all the, the chaos and all the money changers. And... He makes it clear that he's really starting a controversy. And so for the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, this is really a question of who are you? Who do you think you are? And so there's this Bible boxing that goes on and they're jousting with Jesus. And there's this going, this dialogue here goes back and forth with these questions of they're trying to trap Jesus, trying to stump Jesus, trying to put him in a, in a box. And what we see in each of these is that Jesus is the authority. And we think that we're weighing him and we decide for ourselves whether he's king or he's Lord or Messiah. And the reality is he's the one that's also, he's reading us. And so let's give attention to this passage. This is Mark 12, verses 18 through 37. We've got three different little snapshots or pictures that we'll look at. And the first one, we'll see that the Sadducees are just wrong. They're wrong. The second one, the scribe is close. You might say close, but no cigar. He's close. He's not far from the kingdom of God. And the third picture is their view of the Messiah is just in INC. It's incomplete. It's inadequate. It's insufficient. And so it gives us thought and pause about, well, what do we think of the Messiah? So let's give attention here to God's word. The Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection. They asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the, book, about the bush, how God spoke to them, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let me pray for us. Lord, show us by your spirit what you are saying to each of us and to your church. And we pray that we would bear fruit having heard this word and that we would see and believe. Show us the Christ, we ask in your name. Amen. One of the most famous quotes by J.C. Ryle, who was a pastor, uh, late 1800s in England. One of the most famous quotes that he said, he said, Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who's all mercy, but not just. A God who's all love, but not holy. A God who has a, a heaven for everybody, but a hell for none. A God who can allow good and bad to be side by side in time, but will make no distinction between good and broad, or good and bad in eternity. There's always this idea that the enemies at work wanting to minimize what the Lord is saying. And, and I think so much of our culture, we're so big into like, what does love look like? That just to say to somebody, you're wrong, you're quite wrong. That seems harsh. And yet it's, it's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's trying to show these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, you're wrong about certain things. He is the final authority. He is the one to whom we will all have to pass before crossing that threshold into eternity. And what do we think about Jesus is the most essential question that we could ever answer. It's the only thing that's going to matter in a short amount of time. And none of us knows when that will happen. And I got to tell you, you know, when you're, you think you're kind of in control, and just like that, you can be out of control. I mean, my car was out of control, heading straight for a Camaro, for a head-on. And I had time enough to process, this is going to be bad. It's going to be terrible. There's nothing I could do. He moved at the last second to avoid the complete head-on. None of us knows. I could be gone. Um, which just reminded me, I'm so thankful to be here because I was supposed to announce this morning in my complete ignorance 
that I'm going to be a grandfather because Elise is expecting my daughter. I was supposed to announce that at the beginning. I'm a little late to, uh, I don't know how I forgot that, but I'm just thankful to be here. Like, I, I, hopefully I'll be here to appreciate this. So, um, but none of us, we don't know. But we do know we will have to stand before Jesus. And so Jesus is getting people ready. He's making it so clear to us that there is a life to come. I mean, look what he says. These Sadducees come up with this, you know, this trip question of like this fabricated question of, you know, you know, seven brides, no husband. You know, it sounds like a movie title or something. And it's this preposterous story of they don't believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees. And yet they're the elite party. There would have been the wealthy party. They're the party of influence here. They... Um, they're the conservatives. They only, we believe the law. We believe the Torah. We believe the first five books. You know, the only ones that are pure in their minds were the first five books. And so they quote this Leverite principle of, you know, what to do. And they think they've got Jesus snagged pretty good, you know. Who, who's she going to be with, you know, in the resurrection? And Jesus, in this beautiful chiasm, verses 24 to 27... He begins with A, you know, and then it ends with an A. You're wrong and wrong, and then you get a B and a B, which is about the, the scriptures and the scriptures. And, you know, you've got this wonderful chiasm. That's for you, Chris, to just work on for the rest of the time. So you can work on that chiasm. But um, he says, look, you're wrong. And he ends with you're wrong. And the reason you're wrong, he's saying to them, is you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. But that's a really, I mean, this is... Can you imagine? They're, they're in the, the, the temple. They're in the area of, of they, they are the authority. They think they know the scriptures. This is like, you know, going to Nashville and telling people there, you know nothing about music. You know, I mean, this is like being at a Kansas City Chiefs game and, and, and saying, you know, you have no clue as to why the camera keeps showing up in the press box every time Travis Kelsey catches a football pass. Like, you don't understand anything. And if you don't get that, then you're not watching anything. <laughs> so he's telling them they don't know the scriptures of the power of God, which would have been quite an insult, but he's telling them the truth because where he quotes from is from the first five books. He quotes from the Torah. He quotes from like the most common passage of Exodus 3, when, when the Lord reveals himself to Moses in the passage about the burning bush. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac, or I was the God of Jacob. I am. Abraham's doing just fine. Isaac's doing just fine. Jacob's doing just fine. They're more alive than we are because we are dying on this side and they're not. No more dying there. We're going to see the king. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And you have this incredible verse 25 where we're told something about the world to come. 
for when they rise from the dead. Not if, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The idea here is that the angels, they don't need to uh, propagate, they don't need to multiply because there's no dying. They don't die. And their number is set. And in heaven, that number is set. And there's no dying. There's no need to increase. There'll be no decrease. We'll be like the angels. But we are told there isn't marriage in heaven. We don't know what does that mean for questions like, you know, what about sex? Are there going to be sex in heaven? And You know, I just say what C.S. Lewis' famous quote of, you know, the kid is, just wants to know, all he can think of is the greatest thing he can think of is chocolate. Like, you mean when we have sex, we wouldn't have chocolate? Like, that's all the kid can think about. It's the greatest thing in the world, it's chocolate. And for us, we just think on this end, like that's the greatest thing there is. But we don't know. And certainly, sex itself is a, is a foreshadowing of oneness to come. And so, the world before us lies ahead, and it's a beautiful thing. So this is important for us to know, and for us to land, to know that the world to come is real. And Jesus speaks with such confidence and certainty, and he's showing them that they're wrong, that they do not believe in the resurrection. They're wrong. They don't know the scriptures. And for us today, this is important. We who are traveling right now 66,000 miles an hour on this little planet, and we're, we're, we're spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. And for some reason, we're not, in a day, we spin 1,000 miles an hour, but we're not dizzy. And we're just going through this space. But one day, the floor is going to drop out, and we're all going to return to dust. And there's people in this world, they believe that all there is is just matter, motion, and chance, that nothing has any meaning. But if this is true, then everything has meaning because there is a world to come. And this life matters for the next world because God does promise. He promises to reward the righteous and to bring retribution on the wicked. And that doesn't mean you're saved by works. But it does mean that those that are his are going to bear fruit and they're going to prove that they're his. They're they're not going to, you know, your works don't justify you, but they do testify that we're his people. We live for him. And so the Sadducees, he just tells them that they're wrong. And for us, I think a passage like this brings great encouragement because we have seen, and many of you, have been through hard things and have seen loved ones pass. And we just think of Dale Orwig, Bill Wiley, Nathan Alasco, Evie and Blaine Smith, Linda and Keith Harrison, Margaret Davis, Sheldon Locus, Jordan Pulaski. I mean, these are just all funerals that I've done. Brett Fleming, Sharon Rushton, Martha Hudson, Walt Kelly, Erica Geary, and we could just go on. I mean, just some of those names mean a lot to you. And I got news. (laughs) It's Jesus news. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. They're more alive than we are, and they couldn't be better. 
the Bible just says these, these very truths. And so J.C. Ryle, again, he just has this quote that he uses a bunch. It's heaven will make amends for all. Heaven will make amends for all. All these things that don't make sense, that are so difficult. And why did he take some out at a very young age? And very hard things. But let us remember, as C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You've never talked to a mere mortal. We are eternal beings. There is a resurrection. The Sadducees are wrong. And for us, it blows open a door that gives life and hope and increases our faith in the now that propels us now to love and good deeds because of this hope that lies within us that moves our faith and propels us to love. And so in the next passage, we see that this scribe isn't, isn't wrong, but he's close, but he's not in. That's kind of scary because the scribe, he comes to Jesus and he has this uh, question here for Jesus. And he says, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus, of course, he quotes once again from the Torah. And he quotes from the Shema. The Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And so when you hear what is the Shema, it's, it's Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he begins to quote it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the scribe then tells Jesus that you're, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love oneself, neighbors and oneself is much more than all the, the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so you see that this scribe really does want to honor the Lord and he realizes Love is the key, loving God and loving neighbor. And this is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. But the interesting thing is that the scribe thinks that Jesus is pretty smart. And he wants to ask the teacher a question. And so he asks that Jesus a question, but he assumes that he is the arbiter. He's the scribe who knows better than Jesus. He's the judge. And so let's see if Jesus, you know, measures up, if Jesus can answer my question. And so he asks the question as though he's still the final one who will get to decide what he thinks of Jesus. And that's probably a lot of like us. We think, well, what, you know, what do I think of Jesus? And then really the question is, what does Jesus think of us? Is really the question, as, as C.S. Lewis says. So he asks this question and he gives his answer, but then you know, you know, and when he finishes giving the right answer, the scribe is like praising the pupil and says, you're right, teacher. And he genuinely believes this to be true. But Jesus, the final arbiter, he is the final authority. He is the one that we will stand before in that threshold of crossing into eternity. What have we made of Jesus? And Jesus looks at him and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And with that, everybody took a big gulp 
<laughs> and nobody dared to ask him any more questions. And yet, they kind of makes us ask the question, why do you think that Jesus' answer, this is the, you know, if the sermon title is the question of all questions, this is the answer that shuts down all questions. And the reason why it shuts down all the questions and sobered everybody is that nobody knows how close or far one is to the kingdom of God. Nobody has that tape measure. Nobody has the audacity to measure and to declare a measurement because nobody truly knows the answer to that question but God alone. Who knows how close you are or far you are from the kingdom of God? The answer is Jesus knows. And he looks at this person and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Like I have the tape measure and I know where you're at and you're not far. Nobody's done that before. That's speaking with authority. And it was absolutely sobering that one knows if I'm in or if I'm out. And this man certainly thought he was in because he knew the, the truth of Scripture, but he didn't know the person and the author of the Scriptures who's standing right in front of him. And you who grew up in the church, you who know some answers in Sunday school and children's church, are you close but not in? Are you an almost Christian? If you die today and Jesus were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? Close is one of the worst positions to be in. Close stinks. You know, if you're a Phillies fan, I mean, close stinks, right? <laughs> I mean, you're two outs or three runs from the World Series. You played, 100, you played 170 games. And you're telling me two outs and three, and three runs? You know, over three games? I mean, like, you're kidding. It stinks to be close. It's better than being a Nationals fan, okay? I mean, let's put it like that. I mean, listen, it, it stinks when you're, you're you know, you're, you're that close to getting the job. But there's one person who got it before you, right? You're, you're, you're one person away. I mean, I just read recently about a guy that he was going to get his, his PGA golfer card, his ticket to be on the tour. But he misplaced his ball and he was deducted a stroke. And because he was deducted a stroke, it put him now from getting his card and now he was, it moved him down like so many points, just that one stroke, and he didn't get his PGA card because he didn't put his ball down correctly on the green. Close sometimes really stinks, right? Who wants to be close? Why would you want to be close when you can be in? Have you crossed over? And the point is, is that nobody has ever kept the Shema. Nobody's kept it precisely and perfectly. Those that are close may think this is the way to get in. It's not at all. Jesus is the only one who's precisely and perfectly kept the Shema. He's the only one who's loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, his strength. We haven't even done that in this worship service. And he's the only one who's loved his neighbor as himself. For us, when we look closely at the Shema, 
We are in need of grace for our guilt of having violated it. We are in need of a Savior to cover our shame. We need a new record, a new heart, and a new life. And that's why Jesus has come down from heaven to earth and has taken on flesh, and he's come to give us a perfect record by keeping the Shema for us. He gives his life for ours, and the Spirit of God gives new hearts to those hard hearts who serve sin and shame, and he gives his Spirit to give us new life. So are you close to the kingdom, or have you closed with Christ? Have you closed with him? Have you received his payment, his gift, and crossed over from death to life through Jesus, through him? You know, it's like, how'd you get in here? You know, how'd you get in here? The answer is, I'm here because of Jesus. It's all because of him. I believe what he did counts for me, not based on anything I've done. I'm trusting in the merits. I'm trusting in Jesus. That's the only way in. And so this guy's close, but he's not in. So then Jesus asks a question. This is the question to end all questions. And it's kind of a riddle of sorts. As Jesus is teaching in the temple, he takes a very common and a very uh, common understanding about the Messiah. Everybody knew that the Messiah, the Christ, would, will, will be the son of David. God promises an offspring of David, going to be on his throne forever, and there's lots of promises and prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures that speak of a, of a David to come who's going to be even better. and He's going to be this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace. And, you know, we're told of the increase and of his government, of his peace, there'll be no, no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, David's kingdom, to establish it. David's kingdom, and to uphold it, David's kingdom, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, right? It's all about the son of David is going to do this, this offspring of David. They certainly got that. But what Jesus is showing them is that's an INC. That's incomplete. There's more to it than that. Jesus, knowing the Scriptures... He says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. And then he quotes Psalm 110.1. But just before I move on from that, isn't it it amazing that you look at this passage here and you see what Jesus thinks about the Scriptures. What is Jesus' view of the Scriptures? I mean, we just read right over that. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, Jesus believes that when David wrote, that was the Holy Spirit that was speaking through him. That it was the Holy Spirit using David to prophesy and to write a heavenly conversation that's taking place. This conversation that's taking place between Yahweh and Adonai, these two Hebrew words. And if you see it, and the Greek word is is just kurios, but in the Hebrew there's two different... Hebrew words, and if it's all capital letters in your Bible like it should be, mine actually has both of them not capitalized, which is a mistake. It's supposed to be all capital letters in your, in your Bible. So if you look at verse 36, the first time it says Lord, it should be all caps. And whenever you see all capital letters, you know that that's the Hebrew word for Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God that's only referring to the Lord. 
to Yahweh himself. But Adonai can refer to God, but it can also refer to a king or a ruler or a lord. Sometimes it's, it does have earthly references, but it too can refer to God. But it's not the exclusive name of God. But here we're given a heavenly conversation from Psalm 110 that Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Jesus is wanting to know, wait a minute, David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, David is referring to the Messiah, this messianic passage of the Lord saying to my Lord. He refers to, uh, David is calling the Christ Lord. How can he also be his son? That's the riddle. That's the question. And it's really a kind of a question that the, the, the lock that unlocks this, this is kind of the key to the whole New Testament. Because the answer is, is that Jesus is David's son, but he's also David's Lord. He's the son of man, but he's the son of God. And unless you can see that Jesus is fully God and fully man and fully God who be, becomes a human being and he, he becomes a son of David and taking flesh to himself, but he was God all along. He has a divine origin. He's always been with the Father and that this is a heavenly conversation being recorded in heaven that God has made a promise to his son that sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool is going to happen in time, space, and history. And that's what we see the rest of the Bible playing itself out. And so it kind of begs some questions of us. I mean, so if you're reading this, you say, well, how can an earthly king, like if it's referring to somebody else other than Jesus, how could an earthly king sit at the right hand of God? And if you're familiar with Psalm 110, and the teachers of the law certainly were, the conversation that David is recording is got these two oracles. And the first is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But then there's a second one which is God has sworn and he will not change his mind. And he also says to Adonai, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So you put the clues together and you're like, wait a minute. We know that no king in the Hebrew scriptures was also a priest. There was one who tried. His name was Uzziah. And in 2 Chronicles 26, he brazenly went into the temple and he's rebuked by the priest for what he's doing. And he still brazenly offers incense in the temple as a king. And the priests are telling him, you're not allowed to do that. You're not authorized to do that. Only the priests are allowed to do that. And he does it anyway. And leprosy breaks out on his forehead. And they had to get him out of there quickly. That's the end of Uzziah. So the idea is that there is no king and priest. And yet Psalm 110 tells us about a Messiah who's going to sit at the right hand of God, who is going to be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is just two Hebrew words, king, righteousness. You're going to be a priest forever, according to the order of a king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is this obscure reference in Genesis 14 to who Abraham paid tithes to after this victory of rescuing Lot from these different raiders of a band of uh, 
kind of a Lord of Rings kind of scene. Anyway, he, he delivers them, and he, this guy Melchizedek shows up, and Abraham pays tithes to him. But, but Melchizedek is a king of righteousness, and he's called the priest of the Most High God in Genesis 14. So the Messiah is going to be a priest forever, and he's going to sit at the right hand of God. So how does the Messiah do that? And the answer is, is that Jesus Christ is God's son, but he's also David's son. And that he is going to, in his resurrection, after his death, he purchases and pays for our sins, as we've already talked about and sung about this morning. He's going to appear in the flesh for over 40 days. He's going to make all these numerous appearances to his disciples, to a crowd of 500 people. But then he ascends to heaven in the very sight of the disciples, into the clouds, fulfilling Psalm 110.1, where where is Jesus now? He is, and what is he doing? He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Martin Luther, just commenting about Psalm 110, he says it's the crown of the Psalms. Because Psalm 110 is quoted over 30 times in the New Testament. It is the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament. You could argue that the whole book of Hebrews, which we're going to be studying next quarter in Sunday school, is just commentary on Psalm 110. I mean, really, the epistle of Hebrews is just, whoever wrote it is, is reflecting on three psalms. Psalm 8, that'd be all of chapter 2. Then Psalm 95, that'd be chapters 3 and 4. And then the, the rest of the, the Hebrews is really about Psalm 110. Certainly chapters 5 through 9 is all about how he's going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But the very beginning of Hebrews tells us what? That after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it quotes at the end of the chapter, it quotes Hebrews 1 or uh, Psalm 110. But then we know about Hebrews 12 too, where to look to Jesus, right? The author and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him, what did he do? Right? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Hebrews is really bringing out this whole idea of Psalm 110. And this is really where Jesus is making clear to us he is the Messiah. He is fulfilling the scriptures right in front of them. And he's going to, just another two chapters, he's going to stand right in front of the high priest. And the high priest is going to ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says in Mark 14, 62, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further witnesses, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And so here is Jesus, the one who's at the sitting at the right hand of God. He is the one that will judge everybody. He's the ruler of kings. He's condemned in this earthly court, in this earthly kangaroo court. Jesus is condemned to death. They have ruled him guilty of blasphemy, and he is crucified. What should that say to us? 
You might be on the wrong side in earthly courts. And what people, the opinions of men, what people will say of you. But there's only one court that matters, ultimately. As we will stand before the Son of God, at the right hand of God. And what Jesus is telling the high priest is, I'm standing before you now, and you might put me down, but you're going to stand before me. I'm coming in great power and glory, and you're going to have to give an account to me. We will often have to give an account. And so that's what the, the, you know, as we read this morning with the call to worship from Acts 2 in that very first sermon, and Jesus, Peter just declares that God raised him up, and of this we're all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit as he has poured out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in Acts chapter 5, the same message is proclaimed. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one whom God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and a savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And then Stephen, who's going to be standing before the wrong court, and he's preaching the gospel and he's just about to be stoned to death, but he's full of the Holy Spirit and he looks up into heaven and he gazes up into heaven. He sees the glory of God. And what does he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And that's the end of Stephen. But Stephen's more alive than he's ever been. And how does the, how does the, Bible end. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So he's reminding us, of course, he's the son of David, but the beginning of Revelation tells us that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, he's the son of David, but he's the son of God. David, or J Paul could just say, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. 2 Timothy 2.8. Or as Paul put it in the beginning, as he wrote the epistle to Romans, he says that he was called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born as a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Is that where your confidence is? Have you crossed over? Are you trusting in him? Here's this, there's this amazing 
verse, when we think about Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> we're talking this wonderful passage that says it talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed the prince of the power of the air. And we were by nature children of wrath. And we were doing terrible things, following the lust of our hearts. But God raised us up when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and made us alive together with Christ. Amen. Then what's it say? Ephesians 2.6 He raised us up with Him, present tense, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are you? Well, I'm right here. Well, you're already seated with Him if you're in Jesus in heavenly places. You're with Him. I mean, how else can you possibly sing, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown for my own? I always feel like, I don't feel so bold singing that. Like, who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a miserable sinner. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the prize through Christ my own. I can only do that because of Ephesians 2, 6. That I'm raised up with him, I'm seated with him, I'm with him now, and he went to the right hand of God, and when he died for me, I was with him, and when he rose, I was with him, and then when he ascended into heaven, I was with him, and when, he, when he's at the right hand of God, I'm with him, and when he returns in power and glory, where am I? With him. And where am I going to be always? With him. It's our only hope, is being with him. You trust in him, you're in. You've closed. You got Him, you got grace, you got glory forever and ever. And you're more alive than you'll ever be and you're more alive than you'll be now. Hallelujah. We got Jesus forever. And so let all these other worries and cares and disappointing things, the best is yet to come. Put your trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, minister your grace to your people, to me. I need you. We all need you. Thank you for these great truths. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to save us. Thank you that you're coming again. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And let me just say this. As we look at this hymn... I just want you to pull up these lyrics for a second, because we sing this hymn all the time in church. You can stand. You can stand. But I want you to just look at the last verse for a minute. Maybe you can pull that slide up, John, to lo the incarnate God ascended. The last verse. I mean, how can we sing this great truth about come ye sinners? How can we come? We're weak, wounded, sick, and sore. We've got all kinds of problems as it lays out in the first four verses excuses of why you shouldn't come, and we come weak, weary, heavy laden, bruised, broken by the fall. I mean, it's not looking real good, and yet we're told to come. How do we come? Because the incarnate God ascended. God in the flesh, that's what incarnate is, the flesh is now gone into heaven, and now he pleads the merit of his blood in heaven. That's what he's doing for us. So what do we do? We venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Come, you sinners, let's sing together. <laughs>